I'm Salma Karashi. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas San Antonio's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today is April 8th, 2021, and I'm really pleased to welcome Alfredo Fontanini, who is professor and chair of the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior at Stony Brook University. Uh, he's also co-director of the Neuroscience Institute there. Um, hi, Alfredo. Hello, Salma. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Alfredo's work looks at how internal and cognitive states modulate neural responses to sensory stimuli in awake behaving rats and mice, specifically um, the lab studies how olfactory and gustatory circuits mediate the perception of taste, uh, represent expectations and control food consumption. His research relies on a, a wide combination of behavioral, computational, electrophysiological and imaging approaches. So in the Zoom today, we've got uh, an eclectic group that covers computation, theory, cellular and circuit physiology and taste. So we've got Fidel Santa Maria. Hi, Fidel. Hi, Salma, how are you? We've got Lindsay McPherson. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Salma. And uh, we've got Charlie Wilson as always. Hi, Charlie. Hello. I kind of thought a good place to start, a general place to start would uh, the discussion would be on just cortical sensory processing in general. So the fundamental uh, principles of sensory cortical physiology derive from classic work on the visual, mostly visual, but <laughs> somatosensory and auditory cortices too. But it, it seems like many of the core ideas about um, things like topography and maps, uh, cortical column structure, canonical circuitry, hierarchy and integration of signal processing, they mostly don't apply to what we understand as the primary cortical areas for smell and taste. So can you say something uh, about this disconnect? And, and if these modalities are really so exotic, uh, taste and, and olfaction, should we be reverse engineering how, how we think about cortical sensory processing based on what's common rather than, you know, thinking of these things as something so unique? I mean, yes, this is a, uh, this is a really interesting and, and very good starting point, I think. Uh, the gustatory cortex, and I think to some degree also the olfactory uh, cortex, I've been studying mostly the taste cortex over the years, is, uh, uh, is quite unique on many accounts. Uh, from the architectural point of view, for instance, it's, it's an area that is stuck between the somatosensory, which is six layers, and uh, the olfactory, which is three layers. And it's a transitional area, which means that its structure changes from a neocortical template into a node uh, called a granular template, meaning that it loses the, the classically defined layer four. And this is just the beginning of, of its oddity. Uh, in a way, if you think about taste as a, a, as a percept, it's, uh, uh, it's unlike vision, for instance. It's different, it's difficult to uh, abstract taste uh, from uh, pleasure and emotion. So I can show you an oriented bar and all there is to that oriented bar, it's our orientation. This is not to say that visual stimuli are uh, you know, meaningless oriented bar, but that could be considered its, its basic building block. Whereas in the case of taste, you can take the, the taste equivalent of an oriented bar, a single molecule like sucrose, and uh, you can dissolve sugar in water and, uh, and you taste it. And sure enough, it has a physiochemical characteristic. It's sweet, but it's also palatable. It's also uh, uh, pleasurable. 
and so is you know bitter is is bitter and and aversive, and so this intrinsic uh, affective quality, this intrinsic value, already sets the the gustatory cortex somewhat apart from other sensory uh, cortices, because you need to cope with that. Uh, it's very difficult to separate these uh, affective and these physical properties, and so. You could try to do it, or you, you know, if you really try to fit the gustatory cortex in all the classic principles of, of uh, sensory cortical function, then you end up with perhaps a lesser model. If instead you try to uh, embrace all the, uh, the quotes oddities of the, of the gustatory cortex and study them as an integral part to perception, then you might actually find yourself with a very interesting model for studying how emotion and perception blend together into a unitary person. So, so and that's pretty much the, the approach that I've taken, uh, I, like, like many others, have taken to the gustatory cortex over uh, the past years. And so that allowed us to, to discover that, uh, yes, it's an area where pleasure and, uh, and sensation are integrated, thanks to connections, for instance, with the amygdala, uh, it's an area where expectation plays a fundamental role in shaping the activity. Again, thanks to connection with areas like uh, the amygdala, medial prefrontal cortex. And so it's an area where reward, perception, and, uh, and emotion really integrate. If you, think, if you look at other cortical areas, it's not that they're actually not doing that. There's work, for instance, and there's more and more evidence coming in the past, I would say five to 10 years, that even the visual cortex, which is the champion of the most, uh, uh, you know, the purest of, of <laughs> most reductionistic of sensory areas can represent a reward expectation, for instance, or can represent sensory motor expectation uh, movement. So it depends That's a even true from, from primary visual areas, right? Yes, 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 exactly. So, so uh, it's probably just a speed of the signal, right? And how so parallel the signal is, right? I mean, we have evolved, I mean, at least us primates have evolved to, to pay attention to the visual stimulus and, and that is in parallel all the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's around 120 Hertz I'm pretty sure sensory, gustatory, and you can probably calculate the speed of the of the sampling in gustatory and uh, olfaction. You can do that. Uh, at least in olfaction, you can know how how yeah, the, so, the so little uh, chaotic uh, turbulence in in the nose happens, and then you can figure out the the amount of samples that you get. And it's probably not 120 hertz, mm -hmm. uh, and it's not as massive probably as. Um, so you're basically saying that since uh, vision or audition are, are in a way faster than taste and olfaction, uh, it's easier to, uh, like they, they seem face value more attuned at the physical properties of the stimulus. Whereas in the case of taste and olfaction being slower, they allow to reveal other properties. I mean, that's an argument for olfaction, right? Olfaction is a, it's a way to preempt, right? And uh, I mean, it's something that yeah, you, yeah, you're yeah, sensing yeah. from far away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then, it's, it's and then you have time to decide if you're going to hunt it, like a polar bear is going to hunt a baby seal, right? I mean, 
the, they can smell them from two miles away or whatever, right? Uh, so, so that gives you a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Once you have the bear in front of you, you don't have that much time. You have to be fast. I mean, another way in which uh, the gustatory system is uh, is integrated with our, our functions, and I think like Lindsay here can can you know tell you more better than I can, is the integration with uh, with the interceptive and with the homeostatic uh, signals. It sounds like almost what you're saying is that the time envelope of the action is what determines it, not the time envelope of the of the perception. So you wouldn't need to escape from a taste stimulus, right? I mean, can we think about it that way as opposed well, to... Like, and possibly like taste stimulus, there are only few exceptions where you need to have, particularly in... Uh, in experienced animals, there are only a few exceptions in which you need to act really fast. And usually in our case is when uh, your expectations are breached. Say that uh, you, you're expecting to, uh, uh, I don't know, like a, a glass of uh, uh, Coke and it's root beer and uh, the, the sudden taste of, of root beer breaches your expectation, that may induce like a rejection uh, uh, response. Other than that, normally like the savoring happens on a fairly long uh, time scale. It doesn't need to. Olfaction though probably would, like smelling a, a predator would cause you to have to move very quickly and, and integrate everything really fast, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah. Hopefully if, you're, if your smell's working well enough, you would have smelled it a little bit in advance and so like like uh like you're, not saying, you're smelling it from far away so you have a little bit of time to like you know gather yourself and go and then make a decision right but I, I do find this this temporal dynamic pro problem of these the different sensory systems extremely interesting and and your work really kind of sh shows this and even within that that um you know the, the epics of this responding is so interesting and and you mentioned too about like how you know even even as you're tasting something one problem is just the physical nature of tastings right yes, you're coating yeah. your mouth they're going in all sorts of different areas to different times it's not you know it I, I mean as a taste as a peripheral taste person I find this frustrating you know because it, it, is, it is messy <laughs> But that's why if you want to study the uh, sensory coding from a purely psychophysical point of view, uh, you know, like we have such a wonderful control over visual and auditory stimuli. And whereas taste is slashing around the mouth in a somewhat uncontrolled way. So yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's a very good point. So do you think we're going to get to the point where we're, we're no longer using taste stimuli and we just activate our taste receptor cells with some channel redoxin? Are you going to try some of this? <laughs> just, yeah. just get a hit, a hit of light on the tongue and then, you know, get a few sweet taste receptor cells to fire and then see what happens in the, in the gustatory cortex. <laughs> I mean, it, it, from, from a point of view, like if one wants to have like a good control over the stimulus, uh, uh, that, that would probably be, good, be a good idea. I mean, I think in the olfactory system, they actually uh, have, uh, have done quite some work in isolating uh, uh, inputs from single receptors onto specific glomeruli. And they have been using that to interrogate and to understand the coding of, uh, uh, of the olfactory system. Uh, yeah, in my case, I wouldn't know 
the degree to which this changes the dynamics, right? Maybe uh, th those sustained dynamics really need a protracted stimulation of, a, uh, of the tongue. And uh, so one would have to, to, to play around with, uh, uh, with those artificial stimuli. My way of controlling a little bit more has been uh, moving from uh, intraoral cannula to leaking. So there are basically two ways in which you can stimulate the, the gastatory system in, in rodents. One is through surgically implanted cannula that flush fluids directly into the mouth of the animal. Now, those are great if you want to study expectation because you can really flash, flash a stimulus that the animal has no clue about, neither the, the, the stimulus nor the timing in which you flush the stimulus. So in a way, those are a great way to hijack the animal's will. You couldn't do the same with, uh, with leaking. But the problem is that you don't really know much of what goes on uh, in, in the mouth. Maybe as far, as far as we know, the animal might be moving the tongue internally differently for quinine and, and sucrose, and we wouldn't be able to see it. Whereas with leaking, uh, you know, at least you can monitor the leaking pattern. And with, uh, nowadays with uh, decent speed cameras, you can also image the tongue from a couple of different perspectives and have a sense of the, of the tongue's kinematic uh, a little bit more. So I've been moving more toward that uh, direction. Uh, the reality is that uh, labs have compared the responses of the cortex to stimuli that are flushed onto the tongue or that are licked. And uh, those basic dynamic blocks seem to stay the same. And so that seemed really to reflect the property of, uh, of the system as a whole, more like uh, forebrain interactions rather than peripheral uh, dynamics. But I'm sure that there are also some peripheral dynamics that play a role. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that too, because they, uh, the, you know, in, in your imaging studies where you look at the, you know, the activity of the cortex, you're letting them, you know, lick, you know, they're, they're trained to lick, they're, they need to be motivated by being somewhat thirsty to, to get them to, to yes, do yes. this. So would you think it would be much different? I mean, I guess from your, from the electrophysiology, you would say that, that there, you don't expect to see much difference between mice that would be cannulated and, and forced to experience whatever taste you, you give them versus ones that are somewhat thirsty and are motivated to lick the taste of? Uh, I mean, uh, also the ones, also the animals where we infuse taste with a cannula, they are uh, uh, thirsty because uh, we're basically delivering uh, 10 microliters per 200 times more or less. So there are a lot of fluids involved in, in the session. And so we need a, a cooperative uh, animal in that sense. But uh, I don't know, I don't expect them to have a huge impact. Obviously, uh, uh, we would not have the signals that precede the leaking. So one of the things that we, we are also observing is that every time the animal initiates a leak, there's some preparatory activity, uh, very much like a, a, as if it was like a premotor cortex. Uh, now, I'm not claiming that that's motor activity or premotor activity, but it's a very, the signal is very similar. And so obviously that kind of activity is not there if, uh, if you're passively flushing in, a, in the mouth of the animal. 
And, uh, and I'm sure that there's also some segmenting of information similar to the sniffing in a way that happens with the leaking. But since two photon kind of like integrates all, the, all, all that, calcium imaging integrates all that over, over a long time course, I would expect the results to be pretty much similar. Uh, fine dynamics may change uh, on a very, very fine time scale, but, uh, but not the, 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 the progression through macroscopic, uh, you know, hundreds of milliseconds kind of epochs. So some of that connects to my next, the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is about how your, um, your work in behaving anim animals has, has moved the needle on competing ideas about um, the spatial organization of taste responses in, in GC gustatory cortex um, that, that come from anesthetized rodents. Um, so can you say something about that? And why is it important to, to be looking for topography or is it still important to be looking for topography? What did you find, first of all? Okay, so uh, uh, basically our work was motivated by uh, conflicting uh, evidence in uh, basically in anesthetized animals. So in anesthetized mice and rat, it was shown by some groups that there was a, a very clear topography where basically there were clusters of neurons that would respond only to sweet and other to salty and other to bitter and so on and so forth. Whereas other work showed some evidence of, uh, uh, of a little bit more overlapping uh, representations. And uh, we approached this, uh, so in our electrophysiology, uh, we never saw too, too, too much evidence of a clear topography. But then again, our electrophysiology was not really optimized to study the topography. So uh, one of the problems uh, uh, of studying the, uh, the insular cortex is that uh, uh, it, it's positioned in a way that is not amenable to mapping. Uh, it's difficult to reach the surface of the cortex. It's basically on the side. So unlike uh, barrel cortex or auditory cortex where you can actually, or the cerebellum, where you can go on the surface, do multiple penetration and map responses, this is much harder to do in, uh, in awake animals. Uh, in the in the gustatory cortex, and so we never really saw any any regional bias, meaning that with our multi electrodes, we could uh, record neurons that respond to sweet and to bitter, or neurons narrowly tuned to sweet and one narrowly tuned to bitter that were neighboring. So, but but again, we the electrophysiology was suggesting that there may not be a map. In, a, in awake animals, but we really wanted to use the exact same uh, technical approach and image on the, on the surface using a, a two photon or wide field of, and calcium imaging. And, uh, and so we found that in, uh, in alert animals, there's no real uh, evidence of, of a gastotopic map, but rather more distributed representations. In a way, it's similar to uh, what has been described in, in the olfactory cortex. Again, somewhat uh, uh, picking the, uh, the chemical senses, taste and olfaction, apart from uh, the classically uh, neocortical areas like somatosensation, audition, and, and vision. Now, why that is important? Well, I think it's important. Uh, there are some practical aspects 
So if there is a clear topography, okay, then it matters where you position your electrodes to uh, study different phenomena. And so if it is true uh, that the anterior part of the, of the gustatory cortex is a basically sweet cortex, then if you're interested in, uh, in study, for instance, how uh, sweet is represented, how the intensity of sweet is represented, then you know, it's, you'd better be in that spot of the cortex, right? Whereas if sweet is represented throughout the cortex, then you can be a little bit more agnostic on where you place your electrodes. So uh, are there kind of like psychometric curves that you can compare your detection of uh, the individual tastings and then compare that to the uh, imaging work that you have done? I mean, I'm, I'm curious because, I mean, I go back to this thing of like the uh, ecological importance of the function of that cortex is it about detecting like single pixels? Because we, we get influence too much on, on this visual cortex stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it's about detecting the intensity, I mean, detecting one photon, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then you generate, you have your photons and then you generate your images and then your edges and stuff like that. Um, but is it about detecting the actual concentration of, of the tastant? Or is it about the relationship of the taste and with other tastes? Right? Yes. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, the answer is so. These are all uh, incredibly important uh, uh, problems and all very difficult to study in the sense that uh, your ability to sense the the sensory space is really limited by how much fluid uh, the animal is is willing to drink. And so, uh, you know, if you want some statistical power uh, in, a, in your comparison, you might want to have at least 10 trials, let's say, of, of each stimulus. Right. And each trial, each stimulation needs to be followed by some sort of rinsing. And uh, that basically sums up that uh, you could do, sure, you can do a psychometric curve, for, but you can do it for one taste time in one position. Right. So you can't really do it. You cannot do like the auditory system when you run these sweeps or you have these frequent peeps and you map all the space and then you do the experiment. By the time you, you have one psychometric curve for sodium concentration. Because this, this should be important if we're going to make a comparison between the chemical senses and the rest of the senses. It's like, what, how come there's so much importance of the um, um, hedonic value? Yes, right? yes, and, yes. And for example, in humans, I mean, the, the hedonic value reported, it's uh, educational, right? I mean, the, uh, an example is uh, like chocolate. And I think it also it's the smell and also the uh, the taste. I mean, the tolerance for concentration of chocolate varies across the the the, the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, anyway, um, no, but but one might also argue though, and some have. Uh, uh, I think it was a, a, a book of uh, Mark Cengizi, I think, uh, on visual perception and the evolution of visual perception, that. Uh, there's a great deal of, of attention that is devoted to elements like uh, the uh, 
oxygenation of the skin, whether someone is blushing or someone is, uh, uh, is getting pale, to the facial expressions, whether they're signaling uh, uh, calm, uh, uh, aggression. So one might argue that our, uh, so, and that may also bring to some differences between primates and rodents, but one might argue that uh, having such a wonderful control over stimulus uh, of variables uh, has kind of confined them to very reduced stimuli that has no uh, affective content. While in reality, uh, there's every reason to imagine that auditory cortices may be attuned to the affective qualities of the tone. If, uh, uh, if uh, you know, you're yelling at your dog or if you are uh, uh, cuddling with your voice or your, your, your dog. These are very different uh, meanings. So one might argue that also the other sensory systems have good reasons or good evolutionary reasons to be somewhat attuned to affected value. It's just that we never studied that way. Whereas with taste, <laughs> since you can't parse it apart, but, but Fidel, I mean, I think the point of what's the function of the gustatory cortex is, is a central point and we don't know. Like the answer is that we don't know. Like if you ask me personally, I think it's to integrate and to learn, right? It, we have a cortex that needs to process food. Food is an incredibly multidimensional uh, construct where you have texture, temperature, uh, olfaction, uh, taste bundled together. All that is integrated uh, on the physiological state of the subject. And, uh, and on the affective state. So to me, that's what the cortex does. It puts chemicals in the context of what goes on outside, in the mouth and in the organisms. But that is incredibly hard to study. <laughs> we basically are kind of like bound to study only, you know, like let's say that this is like a three dimensional uh, picture, we kind of like study a couple of lines, like one line here to get a little I, bit of I, I, was, I was doing a quick search on on, on uh, inkjet uh, um, uh, heads, printer mm -hmm. heads, to see if you could insert one in the tongue and then just spray like You need a bigger rat or mouth. You know, I, I feel I should apologize for doing this because you guys are talking about such important things, but I'm thinking about space again. So, and about that topography. So one of the reasons that topography in the sensory cortex is so such a popular topic is because it integrates with our view of the circuitry. So there are mm -hmm. short range connections, there are long range connections, excitation goes a certain distance, inhibition goes a certain distance. And so the idea is that those interactions are functionally important because of the topography Mm -hmm. uh, and that we can try to understand the structure of the cortex and the function of the cortex all in one go. So, and uh, and you, you were just saying that the structure of the gustatory and also the olfactory cortex is a little different from the, the uh, neocortical regions that are the other ones. And, they, and then the other example I was thinking of is the olfactory bulb itself, which does yes, not yes. really have a spatial topography, but which has this wonderful um, glomerular skipping yeah. uh, long distance inhibition that brings all these far away glomeruli together functionally. So can we interpret the gustatory cortex that way? Are there features of the interconnections of the cortex? What actually, what is the structure of that? Yeah, cortex? no, 
so this is this is a very interesting point. In, in some of the modeling work that uh, uh, that we have done, uh, so the gustatory cortex, when you record, for instance, the spontaneous activity of the gustatory cortex, one could define the spontaneous activity uh, as metastable, meaning that you have some patterns of activity that remain constant for few hundreds of milliseconds up to a few seconds. And then all of a sudden, the whole ensemble changes its activity coherently, okay? And so we found that uh, we can reproduce this kind of metastable activity in a network that have a specific architecture and it's a clustered architecture. And a cluster architecture is basically a network where you have ensembles. You have groups of neurons that are more strongly connected with each other than other than across these groups of neurons. But and, not spatially, not, not spatially, but just not spatially. So we like the model is agnostic, right? It could be spatial, it could be hotspots, uh, or it could be far apart. And uh, uh, to be totally honest, my motivation uh, to get into uh, calcium imaging was to uh, be able to visualize in a, in a special way, these ensembles and whether they were distributed or, uh, or concentrated. Uh, that was one of my motivations. And uh, uh, now it turns out that for many account, uh, calcium imaging, uh, so the, the whole theory that we have with metastability very much relies uh, on, on the speed of spiking and that we lose resolution when uh, uh, we look at calcium imaging. But, but the, the issue remains the same, that uh, whether we can uh, experimentally measure these ensembles of, uh, of neurons. Now, there are multiple questions, right? One is whether these ensembles are need to be ensembles of neurons that respond to the same features. And uh, on the one hand, it's tempting to think that, oh, if you have neurons that are narrowly tuned to sucrose, they should have some sort of preferential connectivity among them. But part of the discussion that, that we had so far, and also part of, of the imaging work that uh, uh, both from, from Zucker's group all the way to, to ours, is that whenever we give taste, there's so many things that we, so many responses that we don't see that makes you wonder whether you know, the ensembles are attuned at other, at either meta properties or other properties of taste. But so practically speaking, getting into a little bit more the nuts and bolts of the cortical connectivity, uh, the lab of, of Ariana Maffei has done some uh, uh, connectivity studies with uh, uh, paired recordings. So what they typically do, and they've done this in the past in the visual cortex, and now they're doing it in the, in the gustatory cortex, they land basically four patch pipettes and they patch onto quadruplets of, uh, of neurons in search of connected pairs. And then if they don't find a, a pair, they move to, to the next quadruplet and so on and so forth. This is a relatively higher throughput than just like doing a, a, a pair. And it seems that with regard to pyramidal cells, uh, um, the, the connectivity in the insular cortex, the, of course, like this, this approach is biased by cells that are neighboring, right? 
And so the connectivity in the, uh, in the gustatory cortex uh, of neighboring cells is much lower than, uh, uh, than in, the, uh, in other, in the classical neocortex in V1, for instance. This seems to suggest that uh, um, the connectivity might be more of a medium range and medium distance. So what, what we're hoping to do soon, uh, uh, we're trying together, both labs, to set up one of those systems where you can do uh, an optogenetically assisted uh, circuit mapping, where you kind of like evil pattern light stimulation and focal stimulation. And we're hoping to get at that question uh, with, uh, with this approach. I also seem to recall- You should come and uh, do the experiments with our new microscope. Oh, uh -huh. I should actually. You should. Happy to come, uh, you know, anytime COVID lets us do. Yeah. So one of the things, I also seem to recall that in the piriform cortex, which has a beautiful, beautiful organization, very uh, 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 logical with, uh, and very geometrical. Uh, while you have a lot of recurrent connections, they're mostly from medium range distance. So in fact, when you record from neighboring pyramidal, uh, pyramidal cells in the, in the piriform cortex, uh, you don't necessarily have as high of a connectivity as in the neocortex. So maybe like this uh, distributed organization, this lacks of map, these sparse representations are also associated with this like more like medium long range uh, reciprocal connectivity. Whereas in, uh, uh, in S1, in the barrel cortex, you have everything that is more packed closely together. And, and do you think that relates with the, that ability that you saw to make these very plastic associations, like when you were, you were trying all these different stimuli to see if they coupled with, or they, they could couple with anticipate, anticipating a taste and response, right? And you saw like at, at baseline level, there was you know, a few neurons here and there that were, would respond to a, a light cue or to a, a little factor, or, yeah, or I forgot the, 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 the auditory cue, a few mm -hmm. more that would have a somatosensory kind of phenotype and, and whatever. But then after you had done the paradigm, right? Yeah, they were training them. Then they were yeah. like, bam, like they were just like all of these neurons were responding to this cue. So, um, so do you think way, that organization would, would kind of improve that ability or in some so way? So I think, uh, I think probably it's, uh, so if you have an area where neurons uh, are narrowly tuned and reciprocally connected. In a way, you're hardwiring the salient features of, uh, of, of the sensory space. If instead you have an area that is a little bit more wishy-washy <laughs> in a way where you have less strict columnar organization, connections that are a little bit more spurious, where you have like a sweet neuron that could connect, be connected with one that does odor. And so you have neurons that, that encode all these features. Then it's easier. You have basically a neuron that is synaptically more responsive. And so then it's easier to do some pairings where a, a stimulus that before being paired was below threshold, then it becomes uh, uh, above threshold. Uh, one other thing that we're also seeing is that uh, the overlap, so the, uh, the neurons that respond to multiple stimuli, 
seem to be like this uh, breadth of tuning in a way, this uh, uh, broad connectivity may be important for animals to uh, even be able to perform a task where you take two sweets and you ask them to separate those two sweets. So in, in, uh, in the seminar, I presented some experiments in which uh, an animal had to sample uh, some tastes from a, a sensual spout and then associate with the taste, with a reward delivered at two lateral spouts. And we uh, trained the animals that one sweet or one type of bitter would lead to reward at a left spout, whereas another sweet and another bitter would lead to reward to a right spout. So this task in a way requires some sort of, uh, let's see if I can say orthogonalization of, uh, of the sensory space where you go from encoding sweets and bitters together to encoding stimuli that predict the direction of the reward. And so for, for a network to be able to do that, uh, you cannot rely on ensembles that uh, are very well separated. In fact, with the model that, uh, that we had developed of the, uh, the cluster network that we developed with, uh, in the gustatory cortex, some of the preliminary data suggests that if we want that model to reproduce uh, the spiking activity that we see in this decision-making task, this odd decision-making task, we need ensembles to not to be narrowly tuned, but to be overlapping so that you can form those plastic representation where at the beginning you pay attention to sweet and then you pay attention to whether sweet or bitter indicates going left or going right. So that like naively, that's one of the functions that I would think uh, uh, some sort of mixed tuning or like a, a, like networks that have a, like a fairly high uh, reciprocal connectivity could could mediate. Whether that needs to be packed in the same space or or spatially distributed, that that I don't necessarily know. But yeah, so we uh, these are these are. I think incredibly important uh, uh, topics of, of general cortical function. And uh, what we tend to do is as we keep finding these exceptions, we ask ourselves whether we really came across an oddball system uh, or whether, uh, you know, in a way, these are every sensory cortex, cortex can be seen from different perspectives. And maybe our taste perspective, our perspective on the gustatory cortex can help us looking at some hidden features of uh, somatosensory or, or, or visual cortex, uh, for instance. So that, that worked for us as a, like as a source of inspiration. I never had the guts of testing the hypothesis in the visual cortex, but fortunately there are other people who are doing it for me. <laughs> Trying to, we're off the, to the usual time script here. So we have until 4.30, is that right? So we have another 15 minutes. So I'm gonna cut this part out. But um, do we wanna bring up anything new? I actually wanted to talk about the discrimination uh, study. Some of the questions that came up at the end, I'm, I'm not sure if we have the time to really draw that out since we have such a, a little bit of time. 
I could sort of give you a last word right now also just what you kind of just did, but <laughs> what do you guys think? Do we want to take it another 15 minutes? Okay. I have time. Okay, good. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that discrimination study that you just mentioned. Um, so in that work, you, you show this evolving response of sensory to motor. And it, one of the really interesting parts about that that I heard was that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that that early phase where you have the discrimination task happening, where you have a sensory coding of the response in the gustatory cortex, that, that you were able to see the discrimination in those neurons, but then when the, when the cortex, when those neurons were taken offline, they the outcome of the task wasn't affected. So yes, yes, it yes. wasn't performing, the, the, the cortex, the, these neurons were not actually performing the discrimination that led to the correct response in the task. Whereas, I mean, that, that just seemed like a very surprising result. No, yes, it, it was very, very surprising to us. So basically uh, we uh, 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 use optogenetics to uh, either uh, silence the activity in the cortex during the, uh, the period in which the animal is sampling the taste or silence the activity in the cortex in the period, in the delay period during which the animal is deciding whether to lick left or to lick right. We find that silencing during the delay has an impact on the performance. The animal makes more mistakes. And uh, whereas the silencing during the sampling has, uh, has no impact. And, uh, and I think like this really, is surprising and was one of the questions that, and it's perhaps one of the questions that comes up more uh, more often and could be interpreted in, in all sorts of different ways. We, we are uh, a bit agnostic uh, about the, the interpretation. So there could be some very technical reasons that, uh, uh, for instance, the activity, the uh, there's more taste activity uh, the taste activity in the cortex is more robust to silencing than the decision-making related activity. So maybe uh, there's uh, the elevation in firing rates is, is less sensitive to silencing than, uh, than in the case of the decision-making activity. So this could be a technical explanation. Another explanation could be that once you train an animal for, in the case of that task, that was a, a anywhere between say six to eight weeks to perform a task, at some point uh, you no longer need the cortex. Uh, you, you know, much like uh, uh, striatal circuits in, uh, in habit learning, uh, you know, they shift the emphasis on, on different portions. One could argue that could happen something like that also in the gustatory cortex. Or the gustatory cortex is not needed for this task I have no problem believing that the gustatory cortex is not needed for simple discriminations. For this task that seems uh, requiring this orthogonalization that is like, you know, against the innate uh, uh, organization of taste, I would be inclined to think that that's such a difficult task that may require the cortex. Another possibility again, it's that you have taste signals in the gustatory system that remain beyond the silencing. So the thalamus, for instance, produces responses that last for about two, three seconds. So if you're silencing the cortex, you might be taking the cortex offline for that half a second following taste stimulation. 
But then when the cortex goes back online, it's receiving uh, information from the thalamus that allows the cortex to, to kind of like catch up and, uh, and perform nevertheless. So these are some of the possibilities. Uh, we are very interested in, uh, in understanding what, if any, the gustatory cortex uh, 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 role plays in, uh, uh, in taste and uh, just in taste discrimination. And so now we have uh, a, a mixture uh, detection task where basically training mice to uh, on, on a very simple task where they need to lick left for sweet, lick right for salt. And then we take we test these mice on a series of uh, of mixtures where there's 90% sweet and 10% bitter, 10% uh, salt, up to like 55% sweet and 45% salt, and vice versa. And uh, this conceivably has some concentrations that are very hard to discriminate for, uh, for the animal. And uh, we're looking into silencing the gustatory cortex at different times in these tasks to see whether the psychometric curve gets uh, modified by the silencing. So maybe uh, this is also a task. We can train mice on discriminating sweet and salt in about a week. So we're also kind of like shrinking the time and uh, the concentrations, they're not trained. You're just using the concentration to probe the perceptual space of the animal. So maybe this is one of the situations where we could see an alteration in the activity. If we don't, then we will conclude that the gustatory cortex is not there to uh, detect uh, taste or that animals can detect taste without uh, the gustatory cortex. Whether that means without the conscious perception of taste, who knows? Excellent, thank you for joining us. And this, uh, it, it's always so relevant to, to so many of our own, um, you know, we, as, as you, I was listening to your talk today, I was sort of thinking about conditioned taste aversion, for example, it's yeah. such a powerful thing and we all have some some reference point to something that we tasted that we just cannot eat anymore. Charlie and I were talking about this earlier. Enchiladas are the no-go for Charlie ever. Oh, <laughs> sorry. So, uh, but it, it's an incredibly interesting uh, combination of, of, of models and just thinking about this idea of primary uh, sensory cortices. Yeah, I just, yeah. I, I, that, that was sort of what I wanted to get a sense from you is that are we just, are we thinking about this in terms of, um, of, of this sort of hierarchical coding of taste? It, it really doesn't apply to taste, this idea of building perceptions and, and integrating. And, and uh, it, it, it's really serious. So, so there, right? was, there was a moment in which uh, the idea of a hierarchical coding was uh, uh, adopted in chemosensation. Uh, for instance, uh, for a, a relatively long time, uh, uh, researchers thought that the perception of flavor, the integration between taste and olfaction would happen only in the orbitofrontal cortex, with the idea being that gustatory system does taste, olfactory system does olfaction, they come together in the, uh, in the orbitofrontal cortex and that's where you have flavor. But more and more evidence is now pointing at the fact that uh, uh, it's really distributed and uh, that uh, 
certainly for the case of, of taste, since eating is such an integrative experience, it makes sense to, uh, uh, to have an area that is actually integrating instead of separating. The idea came every now and then and comes and goes that maybe the different divisions of the gastrotoric cortex, the granular, disgranular, and agranular can correspond to different levels of hierarchy. We never found uh, in our recordings backing to that, meaning that we can have uh, anticipatory responses dorsally in the granular, or you can have narrowly tuned neurons ventrally in the agranular. So in our case, it seems that there's a lot of, uh, of overlap of functions. So yeah, so we much of our work challenges the idea or the, much of the work on the, not just ours, of, of many people on the gastrotoric cortex challenges this idea of uh, uh, primary, secondary, basic feature detection and then assembling of a complicated, more more complex and abstract representations. Thank you for joining us. Great, uh, we really appreciate the time. Thank you, Fidel, Lindsay, Charlie, and of course you, Alfredo Fontanini. Thank you so, so much. This was uh, lots of Thank fun. Thank you, Alfredo. Hey, I just touched up, guys. Thank you. Thank you.